0: When I first started working with medical device companies, I think the one thing that was most surprising to me is the engineers who were developing products had never stepped into an operating room and had never spoken to a single patient to realize what the patient needs or what a physician needs to actually implant in the operating room. It became important to me realizing that they need to have relationships with physicians.
1: Hey this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident and I'm a financial planner and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Justin. This week I talk with Dr. Stephen Fulowski. We discuss how he decided to meaningfully integrate research into pain treatments into his career as a functional neurosurgeon. We spend some time discussing some of his favorite research areas, as well as the negative press surrounding physician collaboration with medical device companies. If you've ever considered consulting for pharma or device manufacturer, you don't want to miss this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Harvey. Our guest this week is a fellow resident of eastern Pennsylvania, Dr. Stephen Falowski. Stephen currently serves as the Director of Functional Neurosurgery at the St. Luke's University Health Network in Bethlehem, PA. He has a prolific research background in pain treatments via spinal cord stim and neuromodulation techniques, and he sits on half a dozen committees with NANS, as well as being a member of the Executive Advisory Boards for various treatments at both Abbott and Medtronic. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your current role at St. Luke's, but before we dive into that, I noticed a couple of things on your CV that I'd like to point out. The first is that you are a very prolific researcher and that's clearly been a career focus for you that I'm looking forward to unpacking here shortly. And the second, which is my favorite nugget that I found buried down at the bottom is that you graduated from undergrad in three years with a double major while making Dean's List, working full-time and training as a bodybuilder. <laughs> How on earth did you have time to do all that?
0: You know, I, I think I, ultimately I'm just a, a very driven person who likes to, to stay very busy. I gain a lot of happiness, actually, from from accomplishing uh, these things. And I ultimately, a lot of times, I don't actually view it as work. It's the things that actually keep me sane and keep me going. Yeah,
1: especially with the physical activity, I'm sure, can be helpful in keeping the brain disciplined when your body's in good shape. That has a positive trickle-down effect, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so, I'd love to hear a little bit about your current role at Bethlehem uh, as the director of functional neurosurgery. What does that mean exactly, and, and what, what's your role there like?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So, uh, I'm the director of functional neurosurgery. Functional neurosurgery is a is a specialty within neurosurgery, uh, specifically geared around uh, implanting uh, electrical stimulation devices anywhere in the brain, the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves. As uh, functional neurosurgeons, uh, the The two uh, biggest diagnoses that we treat are, one is chronic pain with spinal cord stimulators. Uh, The second though is actually movement disorders like Parkinson's disease uh, or tremor that we treat with deep brain stimulators. Uh, I was brought on uh, to St. Luke's to start the functional neurosurgery program there about eight years ago. Uh, They had never done a single one of these cases, but they were very much uh, looking towards the future and they wanted to uh, bring this type of surgery Uh, and therapies uh, to St. Luke. So I took on that role to start the program and eventually worked up now as a director of the program and uh, brought on a partner as well to do these therapies.
1: Excellent. And I want to talk a little bit more about what the process of starting a program looks like in a few. But before we do that, take us through your sort of the arc of your career and love to hear about some of the key decision points along the way and what it was that inclined you to one decision or another.
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, Well, my My background has always been intrigued by the the cutting edge therapies of of neurosurgery and everyone talks about the brain machine interface and artificial intelligence and the idea of actually implanting electrical devices on the brain or the spinal cord was sort of the background uh, that kind of keeps me going. It's everything I was interested in as a kid all through high school and college, uh, which led to why I knew I wanted to be a a functional neurosurgeon. You know, some of the things that I, I, I realized was in the beginning of my career that the first thing you do when you get started is you want to make sure you take very good care of of, of your patients. Uh, but quickly, you know, within a year or two into your practice, you start looking for, for more challenges, uh, more avenues uh, for you to take part in. Uh, I think probably about one to one and a half years into my practice is where I had that, that inflection point where I realized that I, I wanted to start doing other things besides just taking care of the patients. And but I also wanted to advance my field. So the, the two biggest things that like, I realized I could do was, one was, was research. So I started devoting a lot of time uh, to, to research, publishing my own research, taking part in clinical trials, but then also working with industry, realizing that there's a lot of innovation and technology that's pushing this field forward and really wanting to get, actually take part in that uh, and be a major role in seeing the space unfold.
1: And as far as, you know, starting a career in research, if there's a physician out there who says, I'm really interested in this certain aspect of treatment or a certain device utilization, how would you recommend somebody think about taking that first step of, I want to collaborate with somebody who's been here before. How do I go about moving the ball down the field as far as helping my discipline be more advanced and more, you know, helpful for the patient?
0: The first thing you want to figure out is sort of your niche. Where do you want to fit in uh, in in the research algorithm? What type of research you want to do? I think the most common for physicians is very much clinical research, uh, research geared around the, the patients. If you work in a hospital setting, uh, each hospital has its own uh, research department uh, in in order for you to actually either get an IRB approval to do a study of your own, or if you wanna take part in uh, one of the other studies that say the hospital is part of, or uh, industry is running as part of a, a clinical study. So usually the easiest first step uh, to do that is to approach and talk to the the research department of the hospital.
1: What are some of the things that you're working on right now or maybe have worked on recently that you found to be really interesting or particularly challenging? Actually, the
0: biggest research I've done, and it was initially very challenging and uh, something I'm actually very proud of now is with spinal cord stimulators, historically, they were always placed awake, uh, which can be very uncomfortable for the patient. It could also be very uncomfortable uh, for the surgeon. Uh, and sometimes if the if the patient's not tolerating a procedure well awake, it can lead to an inaccurate placement of the stimulator. So I spent a, a large amount of time, uh, energy, and my early research all the way now to my ongoing research to demonstrate ways to actually place spinal cord stimulators asleep. I think it initially sounds uh, easy, but the problem is, is that the reason you keep patients awake uh, with spinal cord stimulators is for two reasons. One is it's a safety aspect. To make sure that you're not inducing any type of neurological injury or causing pain to the patient when you're putting these stimulators in. But the second reason is also to confirm that the electrode is in the right location and it's covering the proper nerves for the patient's pain pattern. So we had to develop protocols and ways of doing that under general anesthesia. So I had to work very closely with the anesthesiologist uh, for a general anesthesia plan I didn't include any type of uh, muscle relaxants, so that way we could actually monitor the nerves coming out of the spinal cord. But then I also had to work closely with the neurophysiology technicians to develop protocols that not only for the safety aspect, but also for the aspect of confirming uh, that the re- lead was in the right location. Uh, I've spent many years now, actually about eight years, uh, doing this research. It's probably the research I'm most proud of because it's led to a complete shift uh, in my space, in my field. Meaning, uh, historically they were always these stimuli were always placed awake, uh, but now they're, they're estimating about 30 to 50% of them are going in under anesthesia with this form of neuromonitoring. So in the last eight years, this research has actually changed uh, the space. It's probably
1: what I've been most proud of. Wow, that's awesome. As you were proceeding in this research, were there any seminal moments for you where you started to see the potential of this can be a really transformative type of procedure, and it sort of encouraged you to keep on pushing in that direction?
0: Uh, Absolutely. I remember after publishing uh, the first paper, which was just a a retrospective review of my own cases, uh, demonstrating that at least it was safe uh, and accurate, that after publishing that uh, paper, I started receiving many emails and and phone calls from physicians uh, around the country who were very interested and how I did it and what the protocol was. When I actually did the first publication, I just published that it was a method and that it worked and it was safe, but I actually didn't publish the method. Uh, so I ended up getting a lot of phone calls uh, asking me how to do it, which showed demonstrated to me that the, the space, you know, the physicians were actually looking for this type of a, a method and they wanted to do this. So I followed that up quickly with another. another pub- oh, I was gonna say I followed that up quickly with another publication on the actual methods on the protocols of how to do it.
1: Yeah. Did you find that most of the interest was in your discipline or was it an interdisciplinary? You had anesthesiologists and maybe other surgeons reaching out to you?
0: Actually, the the most interesting uh, part of that was it was the anesthesiologists, the pain trained anesthesiologists who were the most interested in it. I think part of that is because as surgeons, they were very used to general anesthesia. They were used to using neural monitoring uh, and having the technicians in the room. But for anesthesiologists and the pain anesthesiologists, that's not something they were used to. But the, I think that's actually the space that it's growing the most in and they're seeing the most potential.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. And in that context, when you're doing research and there's this interdisciplinary uh, communication, can you describe a little bit like, how does that work when you're working with somebody from another specialty? How do you kind of divide and conquer? What kind of rapport do you have to have with a fellow researcher to be able to, to research effectively?
0: Absolutely. I, I will tell you that actually it's that integration of specialties that makes research that much that much better. Uh, that much more impactful when you do actually publish. It's important to actually have uh, a relationship, especially between I think neurosurgeons and anesthesiologists and pain anesthesiologists, because there's a lot of overlap what we do, especially with with the uh, neuromodulation space or, or functional neurosurgery space where we're implanting these devices because they can be implanted by surgeons, they can be implanted by anesthesiologists, they can be implanted by rehab physicians. So it's important, I think, to actually have that integration of specialties. I think also realizing that all these specialties are involved uh, is why you need to work together when you do uh, these research studies, because ultimately about 70% of stimulators in this country are usually put in by uh, paying trained physicians, whether anesthesia or rehab physicians. Only about 30% are put in by the surgeons. Um, but the one thing I realized as a surgeon is that, especially with a lot of the research that I was doing, I had to collaborate. Uh, with a lot of the pain physicians and anesthesiologists because one is I needed to get you know, the anesthesia protocols, but then I also had to work with the pain physicians to see what their needs uh, were going to be in, in their settings, which are much different than the surgeons. So we've I've actually done a lot of work collaborating with pain physicians such as Dr. Deer and Dr. Pope uh, because one is they also love to do research and they're very driven. Uh, and they keep up with the studies uh, and they're always looking to push the field forward. So it makes it uh, very easy to collaborate.
1: Yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah, we're hoping to have uh, perhaps one or both of those gentlemen on the show in the coming weeks here. The, so there's the, you know, you have your colleagues, obviously, like, for example, doctors Deere and Pope, who you're, you're collaborating with in this research context. There's also another party at times, and that's the, the device manufacturer or maker themselves. Describe how that dynamic, A, how it influences the work that you do, and, and B, how do you, sort of get a foot in the door to those relationships to, to start working with some of these device companies who maybe have an idea or a product that they need to vet?
0: I think it's, in, it's important, especially in this uh, day and era where there's a lot of scrutiny that's come on uh, medical device companies, as well as relationships between medical device companies and physicians. It's, it's realizing that it's very expensive to get new devices and new innovation and technology uh, to market. And unfortunately, a lot of that money can't be funded by the government or by the NIH. So it's very important for physicians to work with a lot of the medical device companies to to help them know what is important. What technology do the physicians need? What do patients actually need? When I first started working with medical device companies, I think the one thing that was most surprising to me is the engineers who were developing products had never stepped into an operating room and had never spoken to a single patient to realize what the patient needs or what a physician needs to actually implant in the operating room. It became important to me to realizing that they need to have relationships with physicians. You know, Physicians are, are right on the front line uh, dealing with the patients. We're the ones who, the, the implant goes in our hand to actually implant it in the operating room. We're the ones who have to take care of the patients afterwards. So there's nobody more in tune with what's needed in the space to keep it moving forward and what new technology we need than the physicians. So it's important for them to collaborate, I think, with the companies for that exact reason. Um, and if it, if anyone's interested in doing that type of work, which uh, I think is probably one of the most rewarding things uh, I do outside of just taking care of of, of patients, is it, usually what you want to do is you start off with your local uh, representative from that company. And once you start using, like, a product and you get used to it and you're starting to realize the the faults to it, the good things to it, you can then reach out to your your representative who will put you in charge of the district managers uh, with the companies. And they have a lot of openings where they put together advisory boards, whether it's once a year or twice a year, where they want to talk with physicians and get input from the physicians. In addition, they always run a lot of educational courses. So if you're interested in learning some of the new techniques or new technology out there, Um, They can help you um, with that in the education courses. And then eventually what happens is you can become the person teaching uh, those courses. So it's usually an easy way of entry uh, into working with with medical device companies.
1: And at the outset, that seems like a potentially big decision if you're going to kind of like, you know, plant your flag with a certain... Company or a certain device, how do you you know as you come in, you probably don't know i mean you've you've done some procedures with a certain device, probably, and maybe you've seen good effects from that device. How do you determine that this is in fact the company and the device with which I want to really invest time, or why would you not maybe see what else is out there with a certain type of device to see which one's the best how do you how do you kind of make that decision as a young physician
0: yeah, absolutely, I think especially as a young physician, I can tell you what I did. Uh, in the beginning was I implant all companies. I still actually, to this day, make sure that I implant all the companies because I want to have experience with what I implant so I can make a very educated decision on what I'm doing and and why I'm doing it. I didn't uh, initially, for the first year to year and a half into my practice, I spent more time learning how to take care of patients, doing that properly, learning the different companies, learning the different devices that go in so that you can start formulating an opinion. What you don't wanna do is right away start off and just try to pick somebody to work with. Uh, and one of the things actually I pride myself on is that I work with all the companies. Um, I do have ones that I work with more than others, uh, but for the most part, some of the, the my favorite things to do is, is advisory boards and teaching educational courses. And those two things I will actually do with, with all the companies, because I feel that that's, it's, that is not product necessarily specific. You know, Advisory boards are meant to help all the companies To improve all technology. And educational courses that these companies run are meant to actually teach physicians how to put these in safely. So those are things that you can do with regardless of which company you choose to do uh, that with. When you start choosing a specific company is when you start uh, molding with them and joining forces for doing research together and also pushing their technology forward. Uh, those are the things where you want to then start getting into more company-specific, which requires, I always say, it takes the time uh, to learn all the different devices so you can make an educated decision.
1: Makes sense. So you, you described this kind of dual-prong role of being on an advisory board as well as being an educator. Maybe you could take us into each of those briefly and talk about what, is it, what does it mean to be an advisory board member? Who are you collaborating with? What do your meetings look like? What types of intel are you trying to offer the device maker in order to be able to modify their product in some way.
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. The The advisory boards are usually put together uh, by the companies. They're usually a full day event, anywhere from eight to 10 hours. Um, and it's going to be, they usually put several physicians in a room together, multiple specialties. So it'll be pain anesthesia, the neurosurgeons, even sometimes neurologists. And essentially what they do is one is they, they ask your opinions on uh, certain aspects of the field, where you think the field is going uh, and what a lot of times companies will do then is they'll start presenting to you ideas of where they think this field is going to go and what new devices that they're working on. Also, new research projects that they're deciding where to put the, the money into. And then they have the physicians all chime in and talk about what they think the most important aspects are, Where what does the field actually need, if the, the research studies that they're working on are valuable, um, how do they go down that road, how do they design the research study if they're working on new products and the physicians can get involved, say, yes, that's actually a product that we do need in our space. And this is what that product should do. And this is where you should, you know, allocate your resources. Because ultimately the, these companies have a set amount of money that's going to get returned back into device, device innovation uh, as well as into research. So they're they're really trying to decide also where to allocate those funds. And you really can be impactful in the space as a physician on these advisory boards because you're actually guiding these companies on where to put their money to make the field better. And then ultimately as being part of those those advisory boards, you actually can then become part of the research. So say now you learn that there's a research study that you wanted them to push forward. They've now agreed. Uh, you can be one of the centers that takes part in it. That I think is actually probably the one of the I think most rewarding parts uh, of working with industry is especially those advisory boards. But I also do truly enjoy the educational offerings, and I do a lot of uh, work through societies like NANS, the North American Neuromodulation Society, as well as even uh, ASRA and a large amount of the pain societies for educational purposes. I run a lot of the courses as course director. I truly believe that one is our space is going to grow through education. The more physicians uh, you educate, the more are actually going to go out and do the therapy. But more importantly, they're going to go out and do the therapy the right way uh, and the safe way to do it, which is what you want, because that's what protects our field and our space. And if we're going to grow, we have to grow uh, the right way. So we can run a lot of educational offerings through society, which is a great way to to get involved. But also um, the device manufacturer companies also run educational courses. Uh, So I get invited by a lot of these companies to help direct their courses so that they can pick topics and how they're going to train the physicians. One of the big ones now that the companies are moving towards, and especially societies as well as fellowship education, is educating fellows early on. So that if you learn this early on in your career, you have a whole career ahead of you where you can uh, be part of this uh, innovative space.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, so I noticed that you're you're on uh, a number of uh, committees with NANS, and and I'd love to unpack a little bit more your work there because it seems like you're putting a lot of time and effort into developing, in some cases, the, the next generation with mentorship and the Resident Fellows Committee, et cetera. So, what kind of work is being done in NANS specifically to be able to bring these pretty advanced technologies downstream to physicians earlier and earlier?
0: Yeah, absolutely, it, it, I would say. NANS has devoted uh, its attention to to education in the space. And I was one of the people who were tasked with that very early on. Uh, About eight years ago, we started uh, what was considered the cadaver course for fellows at at NANS specifically uh, geared towards uh, either anesthesia trained or even uh, surgical trained uh, fellows who were gonna be going into neuromodulation. When we first started this course at NAN's, uh, the first year, I think we had about 12 people. To put this into perspective now, eight years later, we are the largest international course of its kind where we train over 250 physicians in one single day. It's one of the most sought after courses and we actually have it fully funded and we have it funded by all the different companies equally. And then what we do is we give an unbiased, equitable exposure to every all the fellows, to all the different companies, all the different technology. And they spend an equal amount of time on each cadaver station with all the different uh, technology. And the reason we like doing that is because very early on now, not only will they get repetitive hands-on for implanting these devices, but they're going to get an equitable exposure to see all the different companies and the technology so that they can go out and make their own decisions uh, about what they want to use. Uh, later. So that has been a large focus for, for Nance, uh, is to keep developing uh, education. We've now developed a resident fellow committee at NANS that has grown tremendously. I think it has now about 300 members. Uh, it has its own internal board uh, as well. That's how much it's grown. And they do things like we put together career fairs for residents and fellows so that they can learn about jobs that are out there. They also help with uh, contracts and teaching about contracts and and the different types of positions that are out there. The last thing that we've actually moved on to at NANS, which is something uh, I've been the the head of as well and really trying to push this forward is we've now started a certification process. Uh, We eventually want to get to what we consider credentialing, just like you have in the cardiology space for for pacemakers and all you have to be credentialed to put in a pacemaker. We eventually want to get to the point where we credential people for putting in uh, stimulators to make sure that they're put in safely and effectively. Uh, the the first start to that now is to do uh, a certification process. So what we uh, I've helped do with with others in NANS is we've created an entire educational curriculum and platform that goes over a one year period, starting with entry level uh, examinations, taking the fellows course, going through a series of webinars and reading publications throughout the year, and it ends with a final test at the end of the year, uh, at which point then NANS will certify. Uh, people uh, for putting in the stimulator so it's an initial step and
1: is that something that would be open to any a practitioner at any point in their career or is it more geared towards uh, sort of the the new residents and fellows so
0: we we have two tracks uh, one for residents and fellows uh, and then we have a second track for those who are already in practice Uh, that second track for those who are already in practice if they're already doing these type of therapies and they feel comfortable doing them we have a different track where they can be signed off on different milestones um, but we also have a track where if if you're if you're out and attending in practice but still have never done these therapies, we have a track for them as well. So we have different tracks.
1: great. I want to pivot here and, and discuss some of the uh, press that has come up in the last few, few months with regards to the collaboration between physicians and these drug companies and required disclosures and things um, shortly after you and I began. Speaking, there was that the AP article about pain and neuromodulation specifically, um, where it was highlighting some of the financial relationships that physicians had with drug companies um, and then there there 's been a handful of others in the last couple of weeks so the New York Times and the AMA Journal that has evaluated this so i 'd love to hear your thoughts describe the way that compensation arrangements work in, in this context if you 're doing consulting. For a company, if you're on an executive advisory board, uh, if you're running a study, how does that function for the physician and what checks and balances and measures are in place to be able to navigate the moral hazard of working for a company, being in a position to potentially advocate that hardware, and uh, but maybe it's not best for the patient in some cases.
0: I think this is a very hot topic now, and I think that unfortunately the, the news tends to sensationalize things and they don't always present everything in the, the brightest of lights. I think the the important thing to realize is that when physicians work with medical device companies, especially with consulting arrangements, there's rules and policies that are in place by a company called Avamed. Uh, And what they do is they determine what's called fair market value, which essentially means that physicians have to be paid an hourly rate uh, within what's considered a fair market value, which basically means that, you know, as a physician, you just cannot be paid an exorbitant amount of money compared to anybody else. All the physicians are kept within a certain range. So when consulting agreements are put into place, your hourly rate is determined on that fair market value. So ultimately, uh, it usually means that the more money that, say, you would make with a, a medical device company means the more hours that you have put in. There's usually l- rules in place that you can only uh, charge for eight hours a day. So even though if you spend an entire Saturday of 14 hours with a company, you still can only charge for eight hours for that day. So there, there are these policies and regulations in place. Now, there, I always say there are bad seeds out there who are trying to push the envelope. And uh, But when, when you're working with the, the large companies, companies like Medtronic, companies like St. Jude or Abbott, uh, Boston Scientific, these larger companies, they are very much held by the Ava, Ava Med, uh guidelines and strictly follow them. So it's important to realize that when you see these, Financial relationships that exist between the physicians and the companies that they are heavily regulated and it's considered a fair market value and you're just being paid for uh, your time for working with them and not and not necessarily anything more uh, outside of that is right now there there's public websites there's the Sunshine Act website there's also a ProPublica.com which allows you to just put physicians names in uh, and then it will come up uh, what they made uh, with with companies I do think that disclosure is extremely important Um, it is very hard when you're you're seeing you know multiple patients in a day though uh, in every office visit to to say to each single patient well it's important that you know that i work for this company and this company and this company usually uh, and there is no rules or laws in place that say a physician has to necessarily disclose to every single patient I do think it's important to try to disclose to the patients when you can and when you remember when you have time. I would hope that a lot of patients also want to educate themselves. So if they're going to see a new physician, they can look at any one of these public websites and they can bring that up to the physician as well. Um, but I think as patients, it's important for them to realize that this is not enticement. You know, the, if, a, if a physician wants to help push the field forward and work on an advisory board, or a physician wants to train uh, other physicians through an education course that is being put together by the medical device company. That they're just being paid for, for their time under a fair market value. So all the physicians make the, about the same amount of money per hour. Uh, so I think it's important that patients and, and also the general public just realizes that this is not like an enticement to physicians. This is a this is paying a physician for their time to do this outside their normal uh, business hours that they would take care of their their patients at. I think that's something that that's a good point to actually drive home.
1: And with regards to the fair market value level, does that vary based on experience and expertise and research, or is it is it kind of uniform? And, and can you give us a little bit of detail on what, like, how much is that number?
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's uh, There is a range. It's considered like a bell-shaped curve. It, it's not a, a massive range, though. We're not talking a difference of hundreds of dollars uh, an hour. Basically, there's a range that's determined by uh, Abamed and these policies that are in place that if uh, the fair market value is considered within a, in a certain range, and then basically based on your experience, your research level, the, the uh, how well you do things. If if you're really highly sought after, you may fall more towards the top of a range. Uh, as opposed to this is your first time consulting, and you're you're just starting to work with the companies and all. You may fall on the more bottom portion of the range. The important thing though too is that when companies decide that they want, like say, the more experienced person if they're going to try to pay you on the higher part of that range, it actually has to be signed off by policies, by Avament that you have to fit certain criteria to have an experience level, research background, acumen, to get that. Um, It it all depends on your specialty, too, uh, how much you make. So, you know, as say, like, as a neurosurgeon, you may make uh, slightly more than uh, an anesthesiologist who will make more than, say, an internal medicine uh, physician. Because it's also based on... uh, the, the idea of the fair market value is also based on replacing the money you would have made if you were working. So if I'm going to cancel a full day of clinic with patients, it's based on the fact of what your full day of work would have been at your normal career spot. Um, and it's meant to just replace that. So it can range anywhere from basically, I would imagine like $200 an hour up to about uh, $500 or $550 an hour, depending on specialty. Um, but within a specialty, that range is only going to vary from anywhere from like fifty to seventy-five dollars. Um, so the the most experienced would maybe make fifty dollars more an hour than the person who's less experienced.
1: So when you're doing things like the executive advisory board or the you're running the education for these companies, that's that's your rate for that you know that engagement.
0: Correct. It's important because I think that I think people in the public have been become very tainted by this idea that. Pharmaceutical companies are parading physicians around in Hawaii, and we're just, you know, we're just giving these talks at these like uh, elaborate dinners, and you know, and I can tell you, for me especially, I love working with the medical device companies. Um, I hardly ever give a talk or a presentation to advertise a company and their single product. Usually, everything I do revolves around advisory boards, educational courses, um, or even as you saw at are getting to present my own research. Show mechanisms of action with with spinal cord stimulation, and also there there's a lot more things you can do with these companies that actually help push the field forward. That are not uh, that old mentality of just uh, you know you're advertising for a company or or you're just giving a big dinner presentation uh, that's all revolved around fancy stuff. Like a lot of that is really a thing of the past. Uh, so it's important that people realize that. Like and you need to have these relationships with the the. Positions and the companies so that the space can push forward and innovation and technology can happen. And unfortunately, uh, there's a great statistic out there, there's a book called uh, Pharmacophobia, and it's uh, they talk about how 90% of the money for innovation and technology in the is in healthcare has come from medical device companies. It hasn't come from the NIH or, or the government. So, it's important that we, it, it's our job as physicians to make sure that, that that money that these companies are putting back into the space are put back into the right locations. And this is how we do it. We have to take part of them, take part in working with them. And you're paid at a fair market value. You're paid for your time to be there, to work with them.
1: What kind of advice would you give to uh, a young physician who is considering this kind of collaboration, but maybe has seen these headlines in the last month and, and is a little bit gun shy?
0: Yeah. And I. I tell you that with, with these articles that have come out, it, the, the biggest fear I have is that this scares patients, scares the public, and then these, it also scares uh, physicians. And it's scaring them from doing the right thing. You know, Spinal cord stimulation w- was highlighted in the Associated Press article as one of the medical devices, but it actually attacked a large portion of the medical device industry, everything from cardiac pacemakers to breast implants. In reality, all it's really doing is it's hurting patients from getting to to proper therapies because now they're nervous or scared. Uh, And the same thing with physicians. Physicians now are going to be gun-shy of working with companies out of the fear of all this public uh, attention. What I can say is, and this is just something I believe in my heart, is you should do what you think is right. I firmly believe that when I work with these companies on advisory boards and educational uh, offerings and, and research studies and all that, I'm actually doing something that's actually shaping the field. And that makes me feel very good. The only thing you can really do on your side as a physician is try your best to have full disclosure when you can. Whenever I write a, a research publication, I always try to make sure my disclosures are as up to date as possible uh, for that publication. Whenever I give a talk at a society meeting, um, I always load up my slide with as many things as possible on my disclosure slides to to put it out there. Uh, the main thing is, is that there there should be nothing to hide. There should be able to have full disclosure and that's the only thing you can do is just continue doing what you think is right.
1: And I think that, Stephen, that's a great segue to what I want to ask as our last question here. To wrap things up, um, and, and you alluded to this earlier, and I'm, I'm curious, to, maybe you can give a specific instance of, you know, you've put in a lot of time looking at your CV and all of the research and collaboration with peers and drug companies, device manufacturers, etc. You've given so much of yourself to your profession and advancing your field. Tell me a brief story reflecting on one of your proudest moments
0: I actually hope that maybe I have two uh, big inflected, like proud moments that I had in my career. Uh, the first one was I, I was able to work with uh, the company Medtronic to do the first ever live video stream of a deep brain stimulator going in for Parkinson's. And we live streamed it out of my hospital all over the entire country to to other physicians, to fellows, to engineers who worked for the company. And it was aired to multiple spots all over the, the United States. So that for the first ever time you could actually see a live case in the operating room where people could actually talk back to me as well while I was operating and ask questions. And I think that was such a, a big step in, in our space for actually not just that medical device company collaboration with the physicians, but you know, giving access to even engineers to see what it's like in real life in an operating room when a patient, when a physician, a surgeon is taking care of a patient to see the where their devices fall short, to see where they actually work well, to see what the patient's actually going through. But it also gave the opportunity to educate other physicians so they can see live in the operating room who someone you know is considered experienced and with the surgery to see how they do it. To do that, and it was a, it took one year in the making to actually make that occur. And uh, it was something I was very proud of to actually have that. The other one I'll, I'll tell you is there's always a patient I have uh, that's dug out with me with spinal cord stem, and there's one patient that always sticks out to me but she's she's actually a statement for what really happens in our space and she was an older lady who had a severe scoliosis and many years prior went through a very massive spinal fusion and the spinal fusion actually did help her and uh, helped her for many years but then she eventually uh, developed excruciating back pain she was in her mid-50s at the time she had to stop working she became nearly nearly bedridden She had gone through multiple uh, physicians, multiple surgeons, multiple pain physicians for years who all told her there was nothing else that could be done for her. Finally, somehow, some way, she made it onto my doorstep in my practice. And I said to her, it's going to be unorthodox, but I can find a way to, to drill through your fusion and get a spinal cord stimulator in for you. And she trusted me and we did it. And it was still actually, believe it or not, a same day procedure where she went home the same day. I will tell you, at 55 years old, when she was bedridden for probably over five to seven years, she is now out of bed. She's working. She went back to work, and she sends me a Christmas card every year for thanking me for actually giving it a shot for her. When when she went through numerous physicians over years who told her there was nothing left uh, that can be done. Her card, when I get it every year, just sticks out to me because it's something that happens in our space all the time where if physicians aren't trained. Say like in spinal cord stimulation or neuromodulation, they just don't even offer it to their patients. And the big thing is, I think in anything in healthcare and in medicine, if if you know something's out there, even if you don't know how to do it, find a way to offer it to that patient to to send them to somebody who does. Um, that that's where collaboration really comes in. And this patient, she she always sits with me. She she just she nails that uh, to a T.
1: Yeah, excellent. Cool. Well, Dr. Stephen Filowski, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you very much for joining us on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. All
0: right. Thanks a lot. appreciate it.
1: Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.